was uh, chatting with Rod a few weeks ago and um, just mentioned to me kind of things that transpired within their family and just how nice it would be for him to have some time away. And, and uh, so I juggled the schedule around and said, hey, let me, let me take care of things for you. And uh, so I'm glad that they're able to spend some time uh, together away. And as I, you know, was thinking through elements or, you know, what to maybe bring to you, sometimes there's, there's nothing better than just to go back to the beginning and to rejoice and to be thankful for all that we have in the gospel. Um, I'm not a builder. Uh, some of you may be in that trade or profession. I'm, I'm not, never been accused of such, probably never will. But I do know something about building. Um, if you don't start with a proper foundation, uh, then, then you're, you're sunk to begin with. You're sunk from the very beginning. Um, we came up, our family came up here five and a half years ago from Southern California. I grew up in Santa Clarita, well I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, but then most of my adult years in, in Santa Clarita, North LA County. We're very familiar with earthquakes there, as you would be here as well, um, although we haven't had our chance to experience a good one yet, not that I'm wanting that to happen, but we've been, we've been uh, fairly dry in that regard here, which has been fine. But uh, in 1994 was our big earthquake, the big Northridge earthquake. Um, we had uh, lots of damage all through the neighborhood. Uh, our neighbors across the street discovered that they had ended up with a crack in their foundation. Now, when I say that, let me explain what I mean. I'm not talking about like the little hairline cracks you might see in the wall. We're talking about a crack that was about an inch wide that started from the street and ran up the driveway and through the garage and literally through their entire house. Um, that made the house completely unsuitable to live in. Um, it looked fine from the outside but it was rendered unusable because the foundation was faulty. The foundation had been compromised. So too, I think, with our lives. No matter how things look on the outside, no matter how um, they appear, no matter how put together we may look, our lives will be unstable if our foundation is faulty. And Jesus spoke of this truth in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who builds or hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like one who builds his house on the rock. That's the wise man. And the rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall because the foundation was true. It was founded on the rock. And he contrasts that with the foolish man. And the foolish man does the same thing, builds a house, but he builds it on the what? He builds it on the sand. He builds it on the sand, and when the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against it, and it fell, and great was its fall. The foundation was the problem. The differences weren't in the materials or the craftsmanship. I'm sure they were both really nice houses. The problem was in the foundation. So that's kind of where we're going to head back. Uh, when we think about our lives, I mean, life can be hard sometimes. God is good all the time, but circumstances aren't always good all the time. Making the best of life's worst and doing it joyfully in the midst of trials, bearing up under persecution. In other words, just living the Christian life requires a firm foundation. It requires that it's built on something that will last. And in Peter's first letter, he gives the churches in Asia Minor, and the Holy Spirit gives to us today, the church in Castro Valley, the church in Northern California, he gives us something solid to build on. Usually when you're in the beginning of letters, especially epistles, the first verses you kind of usually chalk up as, as introduction. You throw it into this little category called introduction, and you just kind of try and get through them to get to the, 
the good stuff, right? To get to the meat of what the letter is written about. Um, and yet there is so much packed into these verses that he, he captures with captivating detail the very foundation that our lives are to be built upon, namely the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So, so regardless of where you are spiritually this morning, I pray that God helps you either capture for the first time or recapture again the wonder and the glory of the gospel, the wonder of the salvation that we enjoy through Jesus Christ. So if you're there already, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 1. Keith has read it. I'm going to start back up at the first verse. You go ahead and set it in its context, reading 1 through 5. Um, I think many of you probably using ESV. I mean, he's using the NAS uh, this morning, but um, let's follow along as we work through these five verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray as we turn our attention to his word. Father God, we are grateful this morning for the work of Christ on our behalf, for the love that that sent him to this earth, for a sinless life lived, for a perfect sacrifice offered, for a resurrection that demonstrated your power and your ultimate victory over death, and for the fact that he now lives seated at your right hand, ever making intercession for us. Father God, we want to sense that and know that this morning, that you are there, your son pleading our case, you seeing us through his righteousness, we offering nothing but our sinfulness, knowing that it's covered by the blood of Christ. Father, thank you. May you bring your word alive to us this morning. May we rejoice afresh in the goodness and the glory of the gospel that has saved us. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Not, uh, not part of the text we'll be looking at in particular are those first two verses. Um, and again, it's, it's wrapped up into this little thing we call a greeting. And yet oftentimes in the Scriptures, we know that all of Scripture is inspired. All of it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's God-breathed. God has it there for a reason. There's a practical element. He brings greetings to the churches, but, but there's spiritual truth that we find in there that we don't want to miss. We see God's calling upon Peter's life. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. We see God's sovereign choice in bringing people to faith. We see that they're the chosen Peter describes them as such. We see his sovereign plan and care for them. They're aliens. They're exiles of the dispersion. They're scattered all over, and yet God continues to care for them. Um, we see the, the work of the Trinity on their behalf, the foreknowledge of the Father, the cleansing of the Son, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
it just shows again that the, all Scripture is inspired, even greetings, um, things that we can hang on to and learn from. But where I want to land are, are on these verses 3 through 5. They form the beginning of one of the most glorious run-on sentences in all of Scripture. Paul was the master of the run-on sentence. Uh, I think probably you know this one may be neck and neck with Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, one long explosion of praise that Paul offers up. Here Peter tries to match him um, by these 10 verses as he begins this chapter. It just overflows in the joy and the wonder of salvation's things, which he concludes in verse 12, into which angels long to look. That which we participate in, this wonder of salvation, this glory of the gospel, are things that angels even long to understand in its fullness. So I want us to be encouraged. I want us to be enraptured with joy once again at what God has done for us through Christ. So let's begin by looking. We're going to see three different things. You kind of have an outline sheet there, I think, that was in your, in your bulletin. We start with this, uh, the source of our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As with almost every one of Paul's letters, Peter here begins with praise. Blessed be is the word from which we derive the term eulogy. It doesn't seem like that fits exactly. Eulogy, we think in kind of a sad sense, but in reality, what is a eulogy? It's actually to speak well of someone or something or to offer praise for someone or something. And that's what Peter does. Did Peter have much to praise the Lord for? Absolutely. I read his letters, read the accounts of the book of Acts. Um, we're going to see it even in this particular letter. Uh, and and if, if you know anything about Peter... Did Peter only praise the Lord in the good times? We see Peter, you walk through the book of Acts, you walk through his letters, you see Peter praising the Lord all the time, in every situation. Uh, following Pentecost, we see pre Peter praising God after preaching to the 3,000 people and them coming to know Christ and becoming saved. Praise God. Um, we, we see him being beaten and thrown into jail. He praises God. Um, he is experiencing unjustified, unwarranted persecution at the hands of evil men. Praise God. It, it seemed like no matter what bumped Peter, praise spilled out. It, it was just that how his life had been transformed by Christ um, through this time, through the time that he spent with him, through the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I guess to that end, I want you to ask yourself, or maybe even more importantly, to ask your spouse or to ask a close friend, are you quick to praise or are you quick to complain? Which, which one characterizes your life? Does praise fall naturally from your lips or, or do people think it's out of character for you to say such things? If you were to burst forth with a praise the Lord, would they think you were joking or like trying to use it cynically like so many people on TV do where they kind of just mock it? Or, or does that just spring from you because that's what's in you? Because praise exists and resides, Jesus told his disciples, as well as the Pharisees for that matter, that the things that proceed out of the mouth are what represent and define what's inside the heart. They have their origin, or origination in the heart. So if praise doesn't spring from your lips readily and quickly in all situations, one might say it must not be abounding in your heart. If it's there, it will spill out no matter what happens in life circumstances. I like how the 17th century Scottish theologian Robert Layton puts it. He says this, he says, what are our, what are our lame praises 
in comparison to his love. Nothing, and less than nothing, but love will stammer rather than be silent. Love for God just has to ooze out. It just has to spill out. Praise by definition finds expression. So I, I hope that with Peter, we too can find ourselves offering praise, just like the psalmist when he says, I will bless the Lord at which time? At all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. We, we see from the text as well that this, as God the Father is the source of our salvation, certainly part of it, um, God the Father is the source. It's interesting how Peter describes him here. Uh, we see from the text that he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered how God the Father is God to God the Son? How is God the Father God to God the Son? Um, as the Trinity, they are one in essence, and yet individual, unique in person. Um, I like what Lenski says about it. He says, really, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. For Jesus, according to his human nature, God is God. And for Jesus in his deity, God is his Father. So God is his God since the incarnation, his Father from all eternity. And Jesus would say the same thing himself Mary, when he talks to Mary following his resurrection. He says, I go to my brethren, or go to my brethren and say, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter praises the author of salvation, having made many promises to his people in the Old Testament um, and seeing those promises fulfilled, God now acts in accordance with those promises and in accordance with his nature to show mercy according to his great mercy. We see that is the source of our salvation, great mercy that comes from God. Many have described mercy as God not giving us what we deserve. Have you ever heard that? As kind of grace being God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy being that he does not give us what we do deserve. Um, it's, it's probably a simplistic definition. Uh, and, and really, in that definition, it's, it's all about withholding. God withholding something that, that would be negative towards us. Um, but really, mercy, when you think of it in that context... What he withholds is the result of mercy. In other words, he withholds his wrath because of his mercy towards us. Um, the word itself is, is the feeling of pity or compassion toward the miserable, along with the desire to help them. Uh, mercy, in many cases, we see that used, used in the Old Testament especially. Um, in, in the same way that we might see grace extended, the same way we might see faithfulness extended, the same way we might see love extended. Um, and, and Scripture here describes the fact that its extent is great. His mercy is great. We were helpless. We were hopeless, according to Ephesians chapter 2, and yet God acted in mercy towards us, extending kindness. God's rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4. We can confidently draw near to the throne of grace and be assured of his mercy, Hebrews 4.16 says. The supply is never diminished. He has more than enough to save those who cannot save themselves. God is rich in mercy. His mercies are rich enough, they're full enough, they're wide enough, they're deep enough to meet you at your point of need. That's the wonder of his mercy, the wonder 
of his grace. According to Lamentations 3.23, they never come to an end, right? We know the song. His mercies are new. They never come to the end. They're, they're new every what? A new every morning. Mercy is extended to us every morning. God's mercy never grows stale. It never spoils. It never tires. Praise God for that. God extending his great mercy to us. So the Father has authored salvation according to his great mercy. And he's not an idle participant uh, in this salvation. God, the God who revealed himself through the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, also acts in our salvation. What does the verse say there in verse 3? Who has caused us to be born again. Literally, he produces life in us again. This is God's work. This is God's doing. The word forms and the tenses point to a, a decisive work, a regenerative work that took place in the believer's past and was not procured by human effort. It was not pro procured by the, the individual. The mercy is God's. The work is God's. The benefit is ours. New life through Jesus Christ. In that way, we see the activity, the action of irresistible grace as God works in the heart of people to draw them to himself. Um, we experience a new birth. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but God made us alive together with him. He made us alive. He gave us new life. In the same way that we were passive in natural birth, we didn't have a whole lot to do with that process. Mom and dad did. Um, in the same way we're passive in natural birth, so too we're passive in spiritual birth. God doing the work. Grace being the vehicle to be born again. Again, it's, his calling is irresistible for God's chosen. These are things that we need to remember, things that we need to, to hold on to as we go through difficult times in life. We need to remember the reality of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Um, the, the picture of new birth, this concept of new birth, we see it in numerous other New Testament passages. Uh, we see it, John 3 being probably the most familiar as Nicodemus is confounded by the notion that someone can be born a second time thinking of physical birth, not recognizing it as spiritual birth. John 1, James 1, 1 John 5 all use the phrase born of God. And they use it referring to salvation. 2 Corinthians and Galatians calls the believers new creatures or new creation in Christ. The implication of all these terms, there's a starting point and then growth should follow. We're new, we're born, and then we, we, we press on, we grow in faith. We've not been stillborn again, we have been born again been born for a purpose and just as the parents of a young child expect their little one to grow so God expects his children to grow the implication of him giving us that life is that that should grow into something we're to grow in grace we're to grow in the knowledge of his son we're to grow in maturity a good friend of mine uh, David Cummings he pastored a church for years in Mead Kansas once shared an example that by his own admission was a bit troubling a bit disturbing um, he encouraged his congregation to picture themselves uh, at the grocery store or whatever, turning down aisle three, when all of a sudden they see David. And, and he doesn't say hello, however. In fact, he can't say hello. 
He's got a pacifier in his mouth. He's sitting in a shopping cart with his legs dangling out the front in a diaper. And, and, and they said, you know, that ought not to be. Now, part of the picture that you have to understand, David is a, is a man of, of robust build. Okay, so seeing this man and picturing this man with legs dangling in a diaper out of a shopping cart is a bit disturbing. But, but the imagery, while humorous, is far from funny. The fact of the matter is, a lot of people go through life, and that can be their spiritual reality. They're born again in that way. They're given new life, but then, but then they stay as infants. They, they stay requiring um, milk, the milk of the Word, as opposed to getting solid food, as opposed to really growing in faith and growing in Christ. Um, we are God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says. We're created in Christ Jesus for what? created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We're not created because we did good works. We're, we're created to do good works because of the work that he's done in us. We've been born again to glorify God, to use and to grow the gifts that he's giving us. And according to verse 3, we've not only been born again for something, we've been born again to something. God is the source of our salvation but we see also that, that he is the substance of our salvation. Peter, Peter says God is the source, and now he moves into the substance, that which we've been born again to, that which we're to, to be driving towards. Um, we, we face hardship and difficulty in this life, and yet we can do so with praise on our lips because we've been born again to a living hope to a living hope. This is part of the substance of our salvation. The word hope, as used in the scriptures, is not used in the manner we generally use it today. A lot of times when we throw hope into a sentence, it automatically brings in an element of uncertainty. You might say, hey, see you next week. Oh, I hope so. We don't know if that's going to come to be. We, we just hope. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Or, you know, hey, storm's rolling in. I used to travel a lot. Um, in the, the business world before I went into the ministry. And, and boy, you, Weather Channel is what you had to check all the time because you just knew flights could be delayed based on storms. So, hey, storms rolling in. I sure hope I can fly out tonight. I sure hope I can get home tonight. Uh, that's how we tend to use the word hope, expressions of uncertainty or of wishful thinking. But that's not biblical hope. That's not the kind of hope we're referring to here. When he says we've been born again to a living hope, we, we've been born again into, into an absolute certainty, something that's, that's guaranteed. It stands in direct contrast to the empty and frustrating false hopes of this world. We have something to hold on to. The world may hope for the best, but the believer is guaranteed the best. We know what's ahead of us. What does the author of Hebrews say? This hope we have is an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Being a Navy man, having been in the Navy, I know a thing or two about anchors. I can relate to them. I've seen some pretty good-sized ones. Um, USS Enterprise, at least at the time, some years ago, was the Navy's biggest aircraft carrier. It has just two anchors. Each anchor weighs 30 tons. That's 60,000 pounds per anchor. They're over 15 feet tall. So think about it just kind of sitting in this, in this building here. That's a big anchor. Now let me boggle your mind a little bit further. The chain that holds the anchors, each link of the chain, weighs 360 pounds. Each link of the chain. 
Total weight of the carrier anchor and chain, 735,000 pounds, and there are two of them. Now, you would think that, that anchoring a, a ship is as easy, especially with something like that. All you've got to do is get them overboard, and that thing's not going anywhere, right? I mean, that's a lot of weight to hold it down. Funny thing about anchors, no matter how big they are, they can become entirely ineffective. If they're not what? If they're not set against something. If they're not secure against something. Ships, even with anchors that size, can literally just be dragged and dragged and dragged and dragged by wind or by current or by wave. Uh, they have to be set against something. Think about it even in a small boat. You have to try and find a little spot where, okay, good, good. It's, it's, it's set in there now. It's anchored. It's, it's secure. And therein lays the believer's confidence. Because the writer of the Hebrews says our hope, our soul's anchor is secured inside the veil. Who is within the veil? God himself, Christ himself. He, he has anchored it and secured it there. And in this passage it says we're born again to a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His being raised from the dead is what gives us a security that can never be shaken. A hope that is alive and actual. Our hope rests in the reliability of the fact of Christ's resurrection and the promise made to us as a result of that resurrection. That's the portrait Hebrews 6 paints. Hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul because it is set, it is fixed behind the veil where Christ is. It's fixed upon him, our rock who conquered death is at the Father's right hand. He's gone on as a forerunner on our behalf. This is a glorious truth that we need to hold on to, again, when life kicks us in the shins. We need to remember we've been born again to a living hope. Paul told the Corinthian church that we begin with a perishable body, but they are, we are raised with an imperishable body. And to the Romans, he says, therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We have that hope. We have that certainty. God the Father extending his mercy, causing us to be born again into a steadfast, certain hope, secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I asked you earlier to think about how, you know, to what degree does praise dominate your daily life? Well, if you need something, here's a good start, right? It's a good start to remember these things and to be thinking about these things as we walk through life. Um, so we have something to hang on to, and Peter really is just getting warmed up. Um, the substance of our salvation is a living hope. It, it's the same word that, that Peter used in verse 23 when he calls it living, when describing the living and abiding word of God. Hebrews 4.12 describes the word of God as that which is living and active, has a vital power within itself to change the heart of a man, to change the soul of a man. We were once hopeless, but now we have hope, a living hope, because of what Jesus Christ has done. Edmund Clowney writes, uh, our hope is anchored in the past, Jesus arose. Our hope remains in the present, Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future, Jesus is coming. No matter how we look at it, we are people who have hope, Paul told the Thessalonians not to grieve at the passing of brothers and sisters in Christ as the rest do who have no hope. 
but rather rejoice because we do have hope, a certainty secured by Christ himself. A living hope, Peter goes on in the text, talks about in verse 4 there, an inheritance, a glorious inheritance that is ours. The substance is a living hope. It's also a glorious inheritance, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. You know, the word's original meaning is, of an inheritance is, is a portion that one receives by lot, kind of just a, a, a something that's given by, through some kind of a process. Um, in some cases, it refers to present possession, but here it clearly refers to an expected possession, something that will happen in the future that's ours. Let me ask you, would Jewish believers of that day have understood the concept of inheritance? I mean, we get it. We kind of have a picture of it. Would they have understood what that was being talked about, what an inheritance meant? I mean, for the Jewish believer, an inheritance was everything. It dates back as far as Abraham receiving the promise of an inheritance in the land of Canaan. Uh, in the promised land, every Israelite, apart from the Levites, had his own possession, had his own area, his own inheritance, his own land. According to 1 Kings 4, they lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree. Nothing was more desirable than this than saying, this is a place that's mine. This land is ours. God has given this to us. It's an inheritance. But their inheritance was, was in the temporal sense, never safe and secure. Why? They were constantly going to battle, constantly going to war over people that wanted those lands. There was constant tension, regular aggression from neighbors, even exile as a result of their own disobedience where God pulled them out of the land and took them away from their inheritance. Contrast, boy, for us living in these times, the word referred to in inheritance refers to the salvation that believers inherit when they leave this earth. Never to be diminished, never to be challenged, never to be fought over. It's, it's simply ours. And Peter uses three negatives to describe it. One commentator remarked that because this word is so tainted by sin, it's impossible to find exactly the right language to describe its qualities. He can only describe it in what it's not, um, what this inheritance looks like. What's the first word he uses there when he talks about our inheritance in verse 4? It's imperishable. It's imperishable. It will never perish. Our inheritance does not contain in itself the seeds of decay because it's perfect. It came from God. It's authored by God. So it can never decay. It can never fade away. It can never perish. It belongs to the heavenly realm where neither moth nor rust destroy. This is our inheritance that awaits us. Our inheritance shares the very nature of the one who has given it. Romans 1 calls him incorruptible. First Timothy, he is the king, eternal, immortal. As such, that's our inheritance, imperishable, because it's his. We have it in him. It's eternal. Secondly, he describes it as being undefiled. It will never spoil. The root verb means to color something by painting it or staining it. It carries the picture of that which was morally free from any stain. That's what we have waiting for us. Uncontaminated by sin, our inheritance once again shares the very nature of God. Shares the very nature of God, the Son, who is our high priest, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, according to Hebrews 7.26. Revelation 21 calls him the spotless lamb, the unstained lamb. Nothing unclean ever enters that promised land. 
imperishable, undefiled, and thirdly, unfading. It will not fade away. The attractiveness of the inheritance will never diminish. Uh, The picture really is one of a flower that never loses its beauty. Uh, Unfortunately, in our sin-stained world, as beautiful as it can be, there's no point of reference for us to truly comprehend what that means, something that will never fade away. Because why? Plants wither. Beauty fades. Uh, You can photograph the object and try and hang on to that, but even photographs fade over time, right? We have no no way of really kind of seeing what that looks like for something to, to remain in pristine beauty. I used to be in the printing and imaging business, and when I left that industry about six years ago, they were producing inks for high-end inkjet printers that had a light-fast rating. In other words, how, how long would it stay in its pure form and not fade? had a light-fast rating of over 200 years. Not that they could test that, obviously, because it hadn't been 200 years, but, but they did it using UV radiation and kind of to simulate age. And they had developed inks that could last for 200 years. And guess what happens after 200 years? They start to fade. The image will fade. Again, everything that we have in this life, the picture of it is that it will ultimately perish. It will ultimately um, be stained in decay. It will ultimately fade. And yet our inheritance is not that way. It will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. It's death-proof. One commentator says it's death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. That is our inheritance in Christ. So we have the source of our salvation. We have the substance of our salvation. Finally, we have the surety of our salvation. The surety of our salvation. Near the end of John's first epistle, he gives the purpose statement, as it were, of that letter, of that epistle, When he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote the letter. He doesn't want his readers to have any doubt about their future. And in similar fashion, Peter gives us assurance here of what we have in Jesus Christ. This imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is kept or reserved in heaven for us. That's part of its nature. It's reserved for us. The the original language is beautifully expressive. It says that our inheritance was at one time in the past placed under the safekeeping of God and is still being cared for by the one who placed it there. So God has this inheritance for us. It's under His keeping, and He's keeping watch over it. God's watchful care is in no way subject to the disasters that often befall inheritances here. Sometimes things can get pretty tangled in estate issues, can't they? Um, People can quibble and argue. But with him, there are no jealous relatives. There are no declining property values. There are no inequities or injustice. Things won't get tangled up in court. No, God is overseeing it. God is watching over it. The inheritance is being kept in heaven by God himself for you. God is is holding that for you. The language Peter uses assures the readers that this inheritance was intended for them from the very beginning. It was always God's plan to bless his children in this way. And he will bring it to pass. 
We can rejoice in that. That ought to cause us to well up in praise for all that God is doing. This living hope, this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is being watched over and cared for safely beyond the reach of destructive forces. There will be no squabbling over who gets what. Unlike most situations involving individuals named in a will who don't know what they've inherited until the will is read, we do know what the nature of our inheritance will be. We do know what's coming. Eternal life in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the entire family of God. And while I have a feeling it will be altogether surprising, the Word does give us a sneak peek into what heavenly life will look like. It says God will be with us. He shall wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And there shall no longer be any curse. There shall no longer be any night. We'll have no need of sun or moon for the glory of God and the Lamb gives light. And we shall reign with Him forever and ever. Friends, this is what God has planned for us. And it was His plan from the beginning. It was always His plan to bless us in this manner. He will bring it to pass. What, what do you think? Hopefully a little more praise starting to well up, a thankfulness, a gratitude for God in all that He's done for us. Salvation is sure for those, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. We see in this sense that, that part of the surety of our salvation is that it is, it is preserved by God, protected by God. Peter adds encouragement to encouragement as he assures these believers that God is watching over more than just their inheritance. God is watching over and protecting and guarding them. He's protecting and guarding us even now. It's a joy to know that, and it should cause us to be thankful. It's, it's salvation's preservation, protected by the power of God. The word is actually a military term that, that's used to describe a garrison. Certain cities back in uh, New Testament times of the, the Roman Empire were called garrison cities, where Roman guards were stationed inside the city and outside the city. There's kind of a twofold purpose there. Those that were outside were there for the purpose of protecting against people invading the city. And those that were on the inside were there to make sure that the city didn't rebel against authority and cause problems. So protected within and protected from without. <coughs> That's the same picture that we see here. Grudem offers a suggestion that Peter may have intended both meanings here. That God is preserving believers from escaping out of his kingdom and he's protecting them from external attack in his kingdom. I believe the emphasis is on their protection, being cared for and protected from things outside. I think it's a distinct parallel between Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17, uh, a prayer that Peter must have remembered. And Peter was there certainly when Jesus prayed this, um, where, where Jesus writes or speaks to his father, says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to what? To keep them from the evil one. To protect them from the evil one. This is what God is actively doing in our life right now. Um, at the risk of placing undue emphasis on the obvious, I think it's still important to remind it that attacks will come. Just as Pharaoh, with his chariots and horses and horsemen, sought to re-enslave those whom God glorious, gloriously delivered in the Exodus, 
Um, so today, Satan pursues those whom God has glorious delivered from his grasp. And he can be unwearisome in his attack. He can be tenacious in his attack and skillful in his strategy. Uh, I like what Leighton says again. He says, and besides all this, that is, or he, that is Satan, hath intelligence with a party within us, ready to betray us to him, so that we're it were impossible for us to hold out were there not another watch and guard than our own and other walls and bulwarks than any that our skill and industry can raise for our own defense. In other words, our flesh seeks to betray us. That which still resides within us seeks to betray us. And yet we have one protecting and preserving and keeping us. Our lives are kept by God's power. If you've ever done a survey through the the Bible, you see that this is a this is a power that is, that is unmatched. It's a power that spreads from cover to cover as we read through the scriptures. I mean, just highlighting. It's the power that created the universe in Genesis. It, it's the power that delivered the children of Israel and scatters the enemy in Exodus. It's the power that delivered David from Saul's hand in 2 Samuel. It's the power that no one can withstand in 2 Chronicles. It's the power that redeems his people in Nehemiah. It's the power that God rules by in the Psalms. It's the power that that gives strength to the weak in Isaiah. It's the power that heals sickness and disease in the gospel. It's the power that filled Stephen in Acts, the power that leads one to salvation in Romans. It's the power that does exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can even ask or think in Ephesians. It's the power that upholds all things in Hebrews. It's the power that grants us all things pertaining to life and godliness in 2 Peter. It's the power referenced no fewer than 12 times in the book of Revelation as God secures the final and ultimate victory over evil. Friends, from beginning of the book to the end of the book, God's power is on display. And that power is what is guarding us. It's what's protecting us. It's what's protecting you this moment if you're his. God's power and watch care over you. Is it any wonder that one of the ways Paul desired to know Christ was in the power of his resurrection, he says in Philippians 3. He, he wanted to know and experience that. No matter what you're going through, I can guarantee you God's power can and will protect you. doesn't mean you'll never have trouble. doesn't mean you'll never run into the difficult circumstances, but you will be protected and cared for by God. There is no kryptonite with God. There's nothing that causes him to be weak. He is always powerful. Nothing diminishes his ability to guard and keep you. You know, interestingly enough, though, Peter indicates that while God's power is doing the guarding, our faith plays a role as well. We're protected by God's power through faith. Through faith. We see both God's protection and man's responsibility. And the relationship between the two is not the easiest to quantify how that actually happens, how that actually works. One commentator wrote that it's like, again, two sides of the same coin, or perhaps the relationship can be explained, albeit imperfectly, like a father's care for his young child. Um, When I was a young boy, my older sister Nancy and I took horseback riding lessons. I remember we went for a ride one day. I was probably, I don't know, maybe six. She's probably eight. Went for a ride one day and uh, with my dad. We were uh, just kind of following a path, just walking, not doing anything crazy. 
and uh, as just young kids, and we'd follow this path, went to the top of this hill, we turned around, we started coming back down the hill, and uh, all of a sudden, we're just on this like single file path, walking down the hill, and I was the first horse, we're headed back to the stables, and all of a sudden, my horse comes to an abrupt stop, because about 10 feet in front of me is a rattlesnake coiled up, rattle-a-rattling. Now, as a six-year-old boy, I would like to say that I responded heroically. I did not. Um, I was petrified. I was terrified. And at that precise moment, I certainly was not exercising faith in my dad's ability to deliver us from this situation. I was scared to death. Now, did my lack of faith diminish my dad's ability to care for the situation? No. My dad still had the ability to do what he did, and, and, it, it, and my lack of faith ultimately didn't lead to my demise, thankfully, um, but it did paralyze me. It rendered me completely ineffective. I was stuck. My dad um, got off his horse, which at the time was the bravest thing I'd ever seen anybody ever do. Got off his horse. I was pleading with him the whole time, don't do it, Dad, don't do it, Dad. And uh, he just picked up a few rocks and threw it at the snake, and the snake just slithered off, and off it went into the grass. And we rode on to the stables in complete safety. My dad was never taller in my eyes than on that day. Um, he, was, he was, you know, heroic. Now, my, my dad's power, his ability to protect me was sufficient, even though I didn't have faith in it, even though at the time I didn't believe in it. But the demonstration of that power, the evidence of that power as I witnessed it before me, um, actually led to the strengthening of my faith so that I knew that if we encountered that situation again, I would have faith in my dad's ability to handle that situation for us. I could ride on and did with confidence knowing that my dad could protect me if another danger befell us. How much more so for the child of God who has example after example, who has an entire book, an entire scriptures filled with evidences of God's faithfulness towards us, his ability to protect us, to guard us. How much more so should that energize, should that strengthen our faith in him? so that those kinds of situations don't paralyze us. They don't leave us ineffective. We recognize and we can move forward with confidence and with strength because we know what he is capable of doing. He is our stronghold. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe, protected to the end. God is so good in that way. And and then finally, in verse 5, we see that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Um, We see this element of the the surety of our salvation. It is something that will one day in its fullness be revealed. The the, the picture here is just salvation, and salvation, as you well know, is, is a comprehensive turn. It can be thought of as something in the past. It can be thought of as something in the present. It can be thought of as something in the future. And so the picture that we have here is that we ultimately will have a complete fulfillment of what God has already begun in our lives and in our hearts. We were saved from the guilt of sin when we put our trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Ephesians 2.8 says that, right? For by grace you have been saved. Um, We see that we are being saved from the power of sin through sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we see this future tense, and we will be saved from the presence of sin when Jesus comes again. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We see this future point when salvation will come to its fullness. It will be all that it's to be. There's, it's this future aspect that Peter has in mind here. It's essentially synonymous with the, the inheritance he mentioned earlier. The inheritance in verse 4. Salvation is ours in principle now. It becomes our possession in reality when we go to glory. <coughs> and that salvation, it says, ready to be revealed in the last time. This has been what's prepared for us, been prepared for us. The work is finished it's perfect. It's unchangeable. The only things keeping it veiled or covered are the will of, and the purposes of God. The appointed time has not yet come to reveal it in its fullness to where everything will be consummated in Christ. So let's pull back and look at it again. We've walked through kind of the minutia of the verses. Let's look at it again. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And, and to that, I really want to say two things. First, I want to say amen. <laughs> amen to God for all that we have through him and in him and in his son. Do we have reason to bless God? Do we have reason to give him thanks and give him praise? Do we have reason to hope even when circumstances tell us otherwise? Do, do we have assurance that one day we'll be with him? Peter has given that to us. Uh, think about it. Peter was given a threefold affirmation following his threefold denial of the Lord and now gives us threefold encouragement regarding the source and the substance and the surety of our salvation. And so again, I say amen. And, and then secondly, I say this. I say, so what? Can you say that with me? So what? And you say, wait a second. This has been a fantastic passage. That's almost like blasphemous. What do you mean? So what? Well, what I mean is that, is that most people walk out of church from a time like this. I'm not accusing any one of you of this at all. But we can walk out of something like this. We can walk away from the Word of God and never embrace the reality and never fully let the reality of what's been shared with us by God um, to, to really sink in and have an effect, to really change the way that we live. Uh, Peter here doesn't leave his readers with an out, and neither does the, the Holy Spirit leave you with one. The reality of what he's done um, impacts or should impact the way we live. Um, Peter, if you had the time to read through the balance of this letter and, and maybe even into the second letter, you'll see how Peter takes these theological truths, these theological realities, and then puts them into a practical effect. Um, you see it kind of throughout this letter. Because our inheritance is secure, we're called to rejoice in trials. Chapter 1, verse 6 alludes to that. Because salvation will be finally and fully revealed, we're called to prepare our minds for action. Chapter 1, verse 13. 
Um, because we've been born again, we're called to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, chapter 1, verse 22. Um, because we have received mercy, we're called to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep our conduct honorable, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Um, because we have hope, we're called to be prepared to make a defense for that hope, chapter 3, verse 15. Because the end is near, we're called to be self-controlled and sober-minded, chapter 4, verse 7. Because God strengthens our faith, we're called to resist the devil, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. What he's done in this introduction, in addition to just giving them a complete picture of of the glory and the beauty of the gospel and of salvation, is to give them the basis, the foundation for living their life. If he'd have just gone straight to the, here, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, Well, there's lots of people. There's lots of false religions that are all about that stuff, right? Here's what just do and don't do. Do and don't do. That's that's what it's about. And Peter's saying, no, you need to start in the right place. From this foundation, now you're able to build and grow. You're able to do the good works that God has for you because you know he's fit them for you. He's fit you for them. And it rests on the security and the foundation of the gospel. Theological reality informs and infuses practical response it always has to be that way that's why i asked the question so what so what needs to change in your life as a result of the theological realities we've just been reminded of what should be the response if you're here this morning and have experienced the joy of being born again of becoming a new creation in christ of being cleansed from stain and from the guilt of sin and walking in newness of life, then then number one, be encouraged and marvel afresh at the wonder of your salvation, the glory of the gospel. And and then secondly, I would say this, be challenged. Uh, This kind of love commands a response. Are you rejoicing in trial? Uh, Are you clinging to Christ? Are you loving the body earnestly and fervently? Are you ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you? Paul prayed often for boldness to speak as he ought to speak. I pray that we would pray the same thing for us, pray the same thing for one another. Lord, help me to be prepared to speak as I ought. Our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our community desperately needs hope, desperately needs something to hang on to, to hold on to, and that's exactly what the gospel offers. It's also possible, I guess, that you're here this morning and you've, you've heard these things before, um, But to some degree, you kind of feel like an outsider looking in. You're kind of uncertain about it. You've not been born again to a living hope. You you, you don't know you have an internal uh, inheritance waiting for you that's being kept for you. Maybe you're hearing these things for the first time. Maybe you've heard them for 20 years. Regardless of your background, your position, your reality can change today. It can change in this moment. It can change this, this hour In God's sovereign plan, this may be the appointed time that he causes you to be born again. That he brings you into fellowship, into faith with him, currently dead in trespasses and sins. God can make you alive spiritually. One just needs to confess their need of him, ask him to forgive your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to yield your will to him, making him the Lord and Savior of your life. And he will do that. And you will know. Hebrews 2.3 asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And Jesus says, whosoever will may come. 
embrace him today. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful and a grateful people for all that you've done for us through Christ, for the glory of the gospel and for the clarity of its message. Father, I pray that we would just be refreshed in our spirits. Those of us that know Christ and are seeking to walk with him and to glorify him, Father, help this to to just be a balm to that which ails us. Father, I pray that we would um, rejoice in the hope that we have, one that's fixed and secure. And Lord, if there be any here that have never experienced that or, or they've heard this, this is like a, a playing a broken record, but in reality, nothing's ever changed within them. Father God, may your Holy Spirit draw them by your irresistible grace to confess their need of Christ and, and to truly experience what life is, what new life is. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we bless you in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.